0: I certainly count it a privilege and a blessing to be here to share with you this special occasion to turn our minds and our hearts, our thoughts to the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, that name which is above all principality and power and dominion and might. And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Notice all the alls in that verse. And when we look at Jesus, there's another all spelled A-W-E. We look with Him, to Him in all. He is the one that we commemorate this evening. It's often that when there's a funeral, I, I notice now that they don't call it a funeral, they call it a celebration of life and how, how much, how good that pertains to Christ who died. And by the time you would be there and plan a funeral for Christ, he would have been risen from the dead. That's the one we serve and adore. He gave his life, he gave his death, and he evermore lives to intercede for us. A songwriter penned these words. Thou great and good, thou just and wise, thou art my father and my God. And I am thine by sacred ties. Thy son, thy servant, bought with blood. The blood of Christ is a sacred tie that binds us together with the father, with the son, and with each other. And I like the way that songwriter described it as a sacred tie. I've chosen Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 for a theme verse for the message this evening. This verse says, For consider him, consider Jesus, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. It is in the mind, I think, that we often face a battleground of sorts with with ourselves, with the fiery darts of Satan that come against us to cause doubt and confusion. And we begin to think things out and maybe we overthink. And there's a battle there. This verse would indicate that one of the ways to combat that the weariness of the mind and the fainting and the weakness of our minds is to look to Jesus, to look to the Lamb of God. Consider the Lamb of God. That's what we're going to do this evening is to turn our, our eyes upon Jesus. I see this as a very needful thing in our day, not just this evening, but in all of life, To focus on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the Author and Finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase, despising the shame, that that refers to having disregard for, or giving little thought to. It's, um, recently I was looking over a long list of elective studies from a Christian college level education, it was was just a list of the courses you could take. And out of 20, 25 or more of those study subjects, only one talked about anything in the title had anything to do with Jesus or Christ. And I thought, you know, here, here we have, and I'm sure those were very worthwhile studies. But are we so wrapped up in our Christianity that we forget the Christ of the Christianity? Do we forget there's a man standing at the right hand of God, interceding for us? And we get caught up in our formulas and our techniques and all the machinery that makes our Christianity what it is. And some of those are good. But tonight we want to talk about Jesus. There's a song that says, that Let's talk about Jesus. The King of Kings is He, the Lord of Lords Supreme, throughout eternity. I would title the message tonight simply this, Behold the Man, Behold the Man. You know, Pilate presented Jesus to the people, and that's what he said in John 19, 5. And I don't know what he had on his mind. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, but in reality he was saying, Behold the man, Christ Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a verse in John chapter 21, verse 25, it says the world itself could not contain the books that should be written concerning the things of Christ, concerning all those things." And so, tonight we will do that. And I don't know of any subject I'd rather talk about, really, from the Bible. The Bible's full of Christ from beginning to end. Someone made the quote that the two most costly things are sin and salvation. The two most costly things. Sin was costly from the part of man, salvation was costly on the part of God. Some of you may have heard of a, a preacher, Warren Wiersbe, <clears throat> he put it in this perspective one time, he said, do you know what God had to do to create the universe? He just had to wiggle his fingers. When I consider the heavens and the work of their fingers. And then he said, do you know what God had to do to save my soul? He had to bear his whole arm. And then he quoted that verse in Isaiah 53. Who hath believed, our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? So sin was costly. Salvation was probably even costlier. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. I often like to use the words of the songs we know because so often the songwriters could say it a lot better than me. And also, it also... I believe serves as a testimony to those of decades, centuries ago that wrote these hymns that that express the same thoughts, the same faith that we have. And we see that in the words of our hymns even from long ago. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. I believe the cross of Christ stands as a memorial, as a monument, you could say, to all of time. It is a focal point for all of mankind from the creation to the end of time. God had set up that his people would look forward to a time when they would see that cross of Christ, that promised redeemer. Maybe they didn't know what it looked like, but they knew God had promised to overthrow the works of Satan in which the serpent in the garden would be overthrown and destroyed. And I would like to touch a little bit tonight on that theme of, of God destroying the works of Satan. Yes, we think of Jesus came to die, but he also came to not just save us, but to destroy the works of Satan. 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so we look forward to that but it's in a a sense it's already been done to to an extent. And so as the New Testament Church of God we look backward to the cross of Christ in faith just like the Old Testament saints had to look forward in faith and their faith was accounted to them, unto them for righteousness even as our faith is today. Turn to Galatians 3, verse 6 and 7. It says here, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And even before Abraham, you have to think, there were righteous men even prior to that that walked in faith and in obedience to God. But all of this was made possible by the cross, by the blood of the cross. As it says in Colossians 1.20, and having made peace through the blood of the cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. So I thought we would consider a little bit about the cross of Jesus, and I guess we don't know exactly the shape of the cross, but most people would, you know, the generally accepted shape of the cross is that it has two beams, one upright beam, one horizontal beam. And so keeping that in your mind, let's turn now to Psalms 103. and just look at some things that might pertain to the shape of the cross. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. So the mercy of God is symbolized by the upright beam of the cross spanning the divide between heaven and earth, between God and man. How about the horizontal beam of the cross? Let's look at the next verse. For as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. So that let that represent, as far as the east is from the west, the removal of our sins. And I think that picture could also signify the crosses of Christ as pertain to all of time, all of time past, all of time future. It is the central part of human time as we know it. Let's look also at Psalms 107 while we're in that look. Verse 2 and 3. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands from the east from from the west, from the north and from the south. And so the redeemed gathered out of all these, all of the directions. And so the beams of the cross could point in all different directions, signifying that God is gathering people in from the, the east and the west, the south and the north, and so on. I had to think the cross of Christ is a great divider. It divides man from his sin and it's also a great unifier. It gathers people in together, the people of God. In The book of Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 32. We have these words. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee since the day that God created man upon the earth, and ask from the other side of heaven unto the other, whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is, and hath been heard like it. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as thou hast heard and lived? talking about time and the voice of God and a great thing that happened. And in the life of Christ, there was an occasion in the life of Christ where a voice came from heaven and God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, hear ye Him. I had to think of that one verse I read back in Psalms where it says, so great is his mercy toward those that fear him. There was two men crucified with Jesus at that time, along with Jesus. And if you remember, one of those men started talking to the other man on the cross. He said, does not thou fear God? There was a man there that honored Jesus and I think those two men demonstrated a difference we see, say, between fact and faith. The fact was Jesus was on the cross, now that's important, facts are important, but I'm thinking in regard to a person who would say, well, I only believe what? I can observe with all my senses. You know, if you can't prove it to me that way, I'm not going to believe it. There's people like that. That's how they live their lives, only by what they can see. So facts, yes, Jesus is on the cross and a lot of people saw that and they said, you know, if you be the Christ, come down. So I think about that, you know, facts say he saved others. He can't save himself. But faith looks at the cross and it says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I'd like to think about the suffering of Christ and the purpose of His suffering, as best we can, because I think there is some mystery involved there as far as what it accomplished between God. How did the suffering of Christ and the death of Christ necessarily bring about our redemption? What was going on there in the heavenlies between God and the powers of evil, Satan himself. There's another song, the verses say, tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word, tell me the story so precious, sweetest that ever was heard. But there were some sad parts in the life of Jesus and one is the fact that the Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. His own, his own nationality, so to speak, his, his own blood lines. Let's look at Acts chapter 13, 26 through 29, it reads, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, And whoso among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent for they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Now, here you have the rulers of Jerusalem, the Jews, and because they knew him not, and they knew not the voice of the prophets. And, and look how this works. They fulfilled prophecy by not knowing the prophecy in spite of having heard that read to them every Sabbath day, and they condemned Jesus, and they desired Pilate that he should be slain. And so the bottom line in all of that is that it was like Jesus said when he told him, ye are of your father, the devil. And they were actually carrying out the work of the devil in bringing that about. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to suffer? I think we understand that to an extent that his blood was shed for the remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, we know that. But could not he have been slain in a more humane way, so to speak, and that blood extracted, if if the blood was so important, let's just, you know, let's do it an easier way. And you know, the animals that they sacrificed in the Old Testament, they were brought in, the sheep, the goats, and they were killed, but I don't know that they were suffered mistreatment. I don't know that they were. They weren't mistreated in that sense. And so the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament were not necessarily following through with the type that we see in Christ and that he suffered. But to put some light on this, let's turn then to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Here we go again, destroying the works of the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that He Himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted." That word succor, that word means to assist and to come to the aid of and to sympathize with. Jesus went through suffering and temptation to be better able to help those of us who are tempted in order that He might be made like unto His brethren. In Romans 8, 29, it speaks of Jesus as being the firstborn among many brethren. And so I think we understand that connection between the suffering of Christ and how that helps Him identify with us and it also helps us to identify with Him and as an intercessor That is something that we have in common that I think is important to us. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And when you consider how the followers of Jesus, how later on they faced persecution, they faced much hurt and anguish, they gave their lives, they were martyred and so on. It was just fitting that Jesus Himself would be that to them and they could identify in that way with Christ knowing that His followers would fall under the same mistreatment. Hebrews 2.10 says, the captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, I'd like to look at this in maybe just a little bit of different angle at uh, what the sufferings of Christ accomplished. In light of what we read in Isaiah 53, I invite you to Isaiah 53. The the, the Messiah in the Old Testament was prophesied as being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And Isaiah 53:5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised, I'm paraphrasing this, for our peace. And it was by his stripes that we are healed. And so on. There's a song we sing, How Deep the Father's Love Toward Us. And it says in one of those letter, verses of that song, it says, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. So if you look at that verse I just read, there's something that stands out to me in that verse, and that is that none of what's described in that verse constitutes dying. We often talk about, you know, Jesus died for me, he saved me by his death, but yet when you read this, it's almost as if the sufferings of Christ accomplished more than his death. And then you read in Isaiah 53 10, it said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And in verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. I'm thinking now of a little bit the relationship between what the sufferings of Jesus did in the sight of God. You know, there's much teaching out there, out there in other circles that would say that the wrath of God was on Jesus. Is that a correct view? And that God forsook Jesus in all of this. And I'm not sure my conclusion would be that the wrath of God was on Jesus. I'm not sure how you feel. I'm not here to argue that point. But I, like, I would like to bring out some things from Scripture that help explain it in my own mind a little bit what was going on there, because if God forsook Jesus, to me that almost seems like a kingdom divided against himself, or if his wrath was on his son. And I believe Jesus suffered wrath, but I think it was the wrath of man. I think it was the wrath of a sin-cursed earth, even the wrath of Satan. Going back to Hebrews chapter 2, there's a verse that speaks to me along this line, Hebrews 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, doesn't say the suffering of wrath, crowned with glory and honor that He by the grace of God should taste death for every man says he by the grace of God, it doesn't say by the wrath of God. Jesus was an intercessor. And I don't know that there was any example in the Bible where God's wrath was on an intercessor. The intercessor was there to disperse the wrath of God. Jesus offered us a very simple statement in John 10, verse 30. He said, I and my Father are one. And I think that are means past, present, future. All of time. Now, I do believe there were things about the suffering of Christ that moved the heart of God and changed the way God looked at things and maybe changed the narrative, so to speak. The whole narrative concerning the works of Satan and the legal right that Satan had to Adam when Adam fell. Satan had a hostage, you could say, and if God would have destroyed Satan, then he would have destroyed man in the process without the plan of salvation. But I had to think of the story of Abel and Cain. Back in Genesis, we know where Cain went out and he slew Abel. And God came to Cain and he said, the voice of thy brother crieth unto me from the ground. Now Cain was not the spotless lamb of God, but how much more would the blood of Jesus cry out to God from the ground, so to speak. Suffering has a voice. There's an example in the life of Moses. I won't turn to it, but it's in Exodus 2, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And it's the story of Moses where he goes out and he sees... He goes to look upon the burden of his fellow Hebrew fellowmen, and he sees um, one of the Egyptians smiting his brethren, a Hebrew. And it says, Moses rises up and defends the Hebrew, and he kills the Egyptian, he slays the Egyptian. Um, You could say he did that out of a sense of obligation, maybe a sense of righteous indignation, but I think that story may have been important to illustrate something because it's mentioned again in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, I'm not going to take time to turn to it. And there was no... No fault given to Moses concerning that situation that he did the wrong thing in killing the Egyptian. But to me, it was like Moses realized that something had crossed a line. A line was crossed in his mind and he took action. And I wonder if maybe a little bit of the same thing happened in the mind of God. When the Jews and when it says the princes of this world. They desired to go and slay the Christ, and God said, no, you don't have a right to do that. He let it happen, but they crossed the line. I'd like to illustrate something along that line from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 30 to 35. It's, it says here, "'Men do not despise a thief, "'if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. "'But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold, "'he shall give all the substance of his house. "'But whoso committeth adultery with the woman, "'lacketh understanding, "'he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. "'A wound in dishonor shall he get, "'and his reproach shall not be wiped away. "'For jealousy is as the rage of a man, Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. It's almost like that scenario there is that we're saying, you know, there are some sins that are expected, that are reasonable sins. And then there's a sin that crosses a line and takes what does not belong to it. Psalm 78, 65 and 66 says, Then the Lord awaked as one out of sleep, and like a mighty man that shaketh by reason of wine, he smote his enemies in the hinder parts. He put them to a perpetual reproach. You know, when Jesus was on that cross, people were saying, Where's his God? Where is God? Is God sleeping? You know, if he delight in him, let him deliver him, where is God? But the Lord arises out of sleep and as a mighty man he shalleth by reason of his wine. I have one more reference that pertains to this thought that I would like to bring forth and that is in Mark Twelve, six through nine. Mark Twelve, six through nine. Okay. This is the parable of the wicked husbandman. And we know how they sent out servants to receive of the husbandman and they kept slaying them. They would kill him and beat them up. And so it's jumping in here in the middle of this, having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them saying, they will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance shall be ours and they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. And so on. So I think this parable makes it clear who the son in verse six is. The beloved son of God, the only begotten son of God, the last Adam. See, Satan had a right to the first Adam, but he did not have a right to the last Adam. He tried to obtain that right when he tempted Jesus. And so when Satan tried to kill Jesus, and you could say the people did, but it was really Satan, in a sense he was taking what did not belong to him. It was like in Proverbs committing adultery. And it crossed the line with God and, and God said, I think it opened up a way in which God was able to recompense the situation and rescue the people from the authority of Satan because Satan had violated something in the, in the sight of God to where he did not no longer have authority over men in the sense that he did before, the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. He has no claim on me. So that was some of my thought regarding the suffering of Christ and how it fell on the ears of God when his son had to suffer an unrighteous an unrighteous um, event. I'd like to think a little bit yet of the beauty of the suffering of Christ. We often associate the Good Friday service with the pain, the hurt, and that dark chapter in the life of Christ, but let's think about the beauty of the suffering of Christ in the sense that Christ beautifies and changes everything he touches almost, say the cross. Only Jesus could, could bring beauty and grace to the symbol of the cross, which is a symbol of death, to where people like to wear it on their ornaments, they wear it on their, they carry it on their clothing and, and so on. But only Jesus could do that. Where is, um, where, where do we ever do that in our own, you know, in our natural world? If our loved one dies a death, we do not commemorate the manner in which they die. If someone dies in a car accident, we do not commemorate that by having little models of crumpled up cars but we do put crosses along the road where people die. Why? I think it's because while the cross signified suffering and death, it also signified victory. It signified hope and redemption. And even the world, those who may not have faith or follow Christ, they still see the cross as a token of something special, of victory, of hope in their hour of trial. You could say the same things about the word Calvary or the word Gethsemane, forever those words are part of the story of Christ. You know, Pilate put a sign on the the cross of Jesus. And he said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And I like John's account of this story because it's the only account where it brings out how the Jews brought dissent that Pilate would say that. And they said, don't say that he's the king of the Jews. Put on there that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written I have written. There are things that I believe that illustrates that God has set up in this world and he says they will not be changed by order of man. God is putting such and such in place as a testimony and I think one example of that is the way we base our timekeeping on the year of our Lord. Have you ever thought of that? The way we date the years is from the time of Christ. It's from the year of our Lord. I don't know how they did before that time. But I know what they did after that time. And I think it serves to illustrate that Jesus was the true Son of God. Another one is our Bible, the Word of God. It comes to us we believe from God, and it's, if you look this up, and I've heard this all my life, but I checked to make sure, it's the best-selling book of all time, and it's also the most translated book of all time. God is saying, what I have written, I have written for those I believe that doubt his word, and it stands as a testimony to all the world. Jesus said in John chapter 12, Now is the judgment of this world come. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. I had to think of that lifting up Christ. How do we, how do, we do that? Because Christ was lifted up one of several ways. When he died on the cross, he was lifted up and that's what he was referring to. But after His resurrection, He was lifted up to heaven in the the presence of His disciples, to the realms of heaven. He was lifted up in that way. And then there's a third way that Christ is lifted up, and that's by our lives and by our examples, and by our faith, by our love towards one another. And as we confess Christ, It brings victory over sin we conquer in the name of the Lord. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. There's so one more song I'd like to refer to and that is the song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. The the things of earth grow strangely dim. We think, you know, that applies to the nice things of life. The things we enjoy, the things that would draw us away from, from Christ, the amusements of life. But I think it also refers to the hardships of life. Those things grow strangely dim as we look at Christ. And we need that in our lives. Could we think the ocean's fill, or were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. That's like John said, the world cannot contain the books that were written. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. When I think of the story of Christ, I think it's illustrated so good by what Joseph in the Old Testament told his brothers. Because his brothers came to him after their father died. And they were afraid he would recompense them. And Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. That's the Christ we serve, bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. That's our blessed Lord and Savior and Redeemer. And I trust He's Lord of your life and that He's the author and finisher of your faith and that in joy we serve Him. And much like him, we, we despise the shame. We endure the cross he has given to us for the joy that is set before us. So God bless you.